0: Jane Duncan Rogers was devastated when her husband died in 2011, but after her first book titled Gifted by Grief, she founded Before I Go Solutions, which offers training and end-of-life plan facilitation, helping others to plan well, find relief, reassurance, and peace of mind. Shane, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Before we talk about what you do now, which I find fascinating, would you take us back to that time with your husband? Was he showing symptoms? What was going on?
1: He had begun to show some symptoms in his stomach in terms of indigestion, just indigestion, you know, but he had indigestion lots more than me. So we knew it was a bit different but it wasn't really clearing up. He was—he did have medication from the doctor. He had gone to get um, various different uh, explorations. Nothing had shown up. And then he changed doctors. And that particular doctor sent him for an endoscopy. And that's when stomach cancer was seen right at the very beginning stages of it. So that really came out of the blue because the worst we possibly thought was a stomach ulcer, maybe something like that. So it was a quite a shock quite a shock
0: so how long did he have those symptoms before this doctor wisely the new doctor decided to do an endoscopy
1: probably i would say 18 months something like that maybe a bit longer even because it was really um it was just you know indigestion it's like really common (laughs) so it had to get quite bad before he actually went to the doctor about it um yeah so it was quite a long time
0: Where were you and where was he when you were told that he had stomach cancer?
1: Well, I was not with him. I was at a conference in London. We live up in the Highlands of Scotland. So he told me over the phone. Now, what he told me was that he had got home and discovered a letter from the hospital saying that um, he should contact them immediately. And there was an answering machine message as well. And so he knew it was something serious. So... uh, we talked that night and he went in for an appointment with a friend. I asked him to go with a friend and uh, I heard in, I think I was in the airport on the way home um, when he told me what the diagnosis was. And I, I was in shock on that flight. I I couldn't really take it in and I didn't really know what it meant. We hadn't talked very much. Mm -hmm. And um, the first thing I said to him when I saw him at the airport was, is it true? And he said, yes. And I'm like, I'm in shock all over again you know
0: right it was
1: quite yeah it well when that sort of thing happens it just stops you in your tracks doesn't it
0: yeah it, it does it really does mm. so what did the doctor recommend that he do for Was he referred to an oncologist? What was the plan?
1: Yeah, he was referred to an oncologist. He was told that it had been caught quite soon. He should have chemotherapy, an operation, and then more chemotherapy. And if the operation got everything out, then he stood a really good chance of living another 20 years. He was 65 at this time. So that sounded kind of good. You know, there's plenty of people who live with cancer or maybe live with cancer for a long time. And, um, so that's what happened he did the chemo which was not very nice um he had the operation which initially was thought to be successful but actually they had not got there were what they called microscopic traces of it left in the uh, stomach lining so we knew at that point it was uh probably not going to work
0: so let's go back so um The tumor was in his stomach proper. I just want to, for people, it's not in his intestines, it was in his stomach. It
1: was in the the lining of the stomach. So it didn't show up as like a lump or a ball or it just showed up as a thickening of the stomach wall um, and couldn't be got out easily in that way. Um, Right. So the surgeon told us, I think that he took something like seven centimeters um, uh, diameter around the area of the tumor, thinking that would be enough. I mean, seven centimeters is yeah. quite a lot. So a lot of his stomach was quite, taken out. Yeah, it was. But it, it had obviously traveled um, and was that wasn't seen. You couldn't see that with the naked eye or, or the, the equipment that they were using in the operation. It was only showed up in the biopsy afterwards. So, yeah, it was a bit distressing.
0: Prior to that surgery, he did chemotherapy. How many rounds of chemotherapy did he do? Like over what period of time?
1: He had three rounds and it was over about um two months i think or maybe 10 weeks something like that um okay and uh, he was also taking mistletoe therapy which is something that um counteracts the effects of a natural alternative that counteracts the effects of the can of the uh, chemo what is that i've never heard of it i know it comes from um the anthrasop anthroposophical background of Rudolf Steiner and it's quite well known in Germany and there's quite a lot of uh, success with it because of Philip's background which is quite alternative he was open to all this kind of stuff and because there was a clinic near us only two hours away we were able to take advantage of that on the National Health Service you'll hear from my accent that you know I'm in the UK (laughs) (laughs) so that was all free I mean we could make donation to the charity I know it was wonderful really, it because is. it meant that we were able to deal with the challenges of the chemo and the, the illness with um from both the medical and the complementary side and that felt very good for both of us because that had been our backgrounds
0: wow mm-hmm. okay so he does that chemotherapy that sort of preps him for surgery he has the surgery the surgeon thinks he has gotten it all but he did not Now. You mentioned before that the plan was chemo, surgery, chemo. So even with these biopsy results, was the oncologist recommending that he do more chemotherapy?
1: Well, he didn't. He rec- he definitely recommended not to do another operation. He said his body couldn't stand it. And he Philip did start taking the extra chemo, which was in the form of tablets. But after, I think it was just two days, he said to me, I can't do this. It's making me feel too much like a zombie. Now, oh no. we'd already been told that the effect of doing the extra chemo would increase his chances of living longer only by maybe 5%. So it was the odds were not great. So this was about um, June time, I think, and he actually ended up dying in the December. But of course, you, know, you don't know when somebody's gonna die. Let me rewind a little bit, because that conversation was quite a challenging conversation when he told me this. We challenging ch- for whom? I think for him to say to me that he didn't want to do it because another way of saying that was I'm, I'm going to be dying soon you know right. and for me to hear it I really respected him for telling me that. And I was in agreement with it. I wanted to do whatever felt right for him. It didn't matter to me if I would be left on my own, which by the way, was my greatest fear. We hadn't had kids. And my greatest fear was that he would die before me, which he did, but anyway, that's another matter. Uh,
0: well, how long were you married at that point? We'd
1: been married 20 years, yeah.
0: Oh, wow.
1: So, and I was quite a bit younger than him. So I was about 54 at this point, um, And, uh, but you know, I wasn't thinking about me at this stage. At this stage, I was thinking about him and caring for him and wanting him to have the best possible life that he could have while he was still alive. And that's what he wanted too. And that was partly why he said no to a second chemo. He wanted to have, he knew that, you know, the odds were stacked against him. So he wanted to have the best possible quality of life that he could have for as long as possible. And I really respected that. So, yeah. So... What
0: did that mean for the two of you once that decision was made? What did best quality of life look like? Was there anything in particular he wanted to do or places mm. he wanted to go?
1: Well, by this time, he went to England on his own to a, a cancer help centre there, which had been recommended to him and I was in agreement with. Now, that meant that we were apart, which sounds a bit mad, but... We'd always lived a life where we had not been living in each other's pockets. So that was, I felt that was really important. And he was going to see his three adult children from his first marriage. And that was really important too. Um, I can remember thinking that time because I was in the house on my own. Gosh, this is what it's going to be like when he's not here anymore. But you know, it's, it's really different when somebody's still alive and they're just not here uh, to yeah. when they're not alive and you're on your own pen. Um, Now,
0: was that a permanent move that he made? No, no,
1: no, no, He was just, he just went for a visit, like for 10 days or something. Yeah. Got it. Okay. But it was when he was. And he had to
0: tell his children
1: too. Yeah. Yeah. His children knew he had cancer, but they didn't know how serious it was. So to some extent, this was going to possibly be a a goodbye visit. Um,
0: Right. Yeah. But you never
1: know. You don't know when you're going to die. Even if the people, you know, the doctors were saying it was, a. well, they told me. I didn't tell Philip. He didn't want to know. But they told me it would be likely months, not years, which is, was true. Um, Right. And, and, but you know, the funny thing was, I mean, the whole of that last year, I'd say that was probably at least one of the best years of our marriage, if not the best year of our marriage. I know lots of people say this, but.
0: Why? That's so intriguing. Tell us why. Well,
1: we were facing the end. And when you face the end, you really appreciate what you've got right now. Oh, my goodness. So we were so much more tender and loving and and uh, consciously aware of each other. And the little things that used to bother us, they didn't bother. They just dropped away. Right. It was really interesting. And um, so, so much so to the point that that summer, a few months before he died, we were even talking about being grateful for the cancer having come to visit now we knew it was going to kill him so that's quite a strong thing to say but the benefits for our relationship were really really strong we'd had a good marriage but this took it to another level and i think philip did a lot of healing in at a spiritual level at an emotional level it didn't work out at a physical level but from the point of view of healing past patterns in his life, he did a lot of good work on that. And and that really helped in our relationship as well. So yeah.
0: Well, let me ask you this. So in addition to that visit to England to see his children, what else, was there anything you guys did together?
1: No, we talked about that, but there was nothing much that we really wanted to do except hang out. (laughs) (laughs) and and that's what we did what did hanging out look like hanging out just looked like um when I was still working I was working from home so that was fine you know I I had I was working as a coach so I had some coaching clients um I um we we lived as part of a near to a spiritual community where there were lots of events happening so we went to those we we both participated in Uh, Teze singing which is a form of devotional singing and so we went to a lot of that that was lovely he had a lovely voice and together we used to sing a lot you know in harmony which was really nice Um, and we spent quite a lot of time with friends we we weren't living close to our family Um, so we didn't do anything extra special partly though because he really wasn't up to doing very much traveling you know he'd lost a lot of weight by this time so traveling in the car was not comfortable particularly for him um and he also had to be near enough to the hospital to be going for regular uh radiotherapy treatment at this point which was okay supposed to be making uh, him feel more comfortable because by now he was not really able to swallow very easily which is why he was losing so much weight i know it was horrible but um yeah. You know, looking back, I know now with hindsight, some of the things that were going on, but I didn't know that at the time. I was terrified that he was going to die of starvation. Nobody told me that with cancer and particularly when you can't eat, you're just going to get thin. That is what's going to happen. Yep. I couldn't believe it. Looking back, I can't believe that none of the doctors told me that, that this was normal, you know. That's I know.
0: crazy. I know. I That's know. crazy. I, there's a there's a statistic it's got a range, but even on the low end, it's scary. It's 20 to 40% of people who are diagnosed with cancer don't diagnose, don't die from yeah. the cancer. They die from, I think the medical term is cachexia. Yeah. I
1: mispronounce
0: it all the time, but it's starvation essentially.
1: Do you know, it I really heard is. that voice. I heard that word. It was the, um, the mistletoe doctor that used that at the first time. And I never, I didn't know what it was. Still didn't know yeah. what it was really when I looked it up. I just couldn't take it in. I couldn't, you know, the thing about food and drink, when we take in food and drink, it is it means that we're living. When we're not able to do that for whatever reason, whether we're coming to the end of a life naturally and, and our body doesn't want to eat so much food and drink or because it can't happen, it can be distressing for those around. And it was distressing for me, yeah. you know, when I see... I could see that he wasn't eating hardly anything and getting thinner and thinner wasn't nice
0: were they able to manage his pain
1: well that's why he was having the radiotherapy because it was being managed but not brilliantly in the end in the hospital well we went for a normal radiotherapy treatment at one point and um because he was so, so thin by this point, they decided to keep him in and to feed him intravenously. I could tell you the truth.
0: Wow. I know. That's unusual for any kind of GI cancer.
1: Yeah. Well, they did. And I was quite relieved at that because I was really anxious by this point and we didn't have backup at home. Probably we could have got it if I'd known, but I didn't know. Um, and, um, I mean, I, I think back in it, you know, it was just as it was. He was six weeks in the hospital. He never came home again. They must have known he was near to death. Nobody spoke about it. Why were they feeding him? You know? But he wanted, I have to say, he wanted to live at all costs. He hung on right until the end. So maybe that's why they were doing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think that doctors even now know how to have those conversations
1: no i know i mean it's not easy
0: no it's it's not but i feel like most of us appreciate it when they do
1: i know i know
0: when they do have those conversations
1: um yeah when he was in the hospital um they were they couldn't get they, need, they needed to, um, gosh, I can't really remember this now. It's 11 years ago. I can't remember the details. I'll probably blank them out. They <laughs> couldn't get the, um, the that they needed to put down into his stomach um, a tube of some kind. I've forgotten why now. And the report came back from the first doctor who tried it saying that they were had been unsuccessful. And right at the end of this one-page report was, He had put, I'm willing to try again and Philip latched onto that and I felt cross about it because I could see, I could see that this was only going to prolong his agony. By this time he was on morphine. He wasn't coping very well with the morphine although it was reducing the pain, I know he had a lot of hallucinations and they couldn't find the right balance. So. He, so they tried again and it didn't work again. And eventually the doctor came and said, I'm really sorry. There's no more we can do. And that is the phrase that he used. And it was only at that point that Philip actually accepted that, that, you know, the end was near and a few days later he did die. Um, But I wish that doctor hadn't said that because that was a, you know, an extra few days that didn't need to be there anyway.
0: Was there any discussion about getting him back home?
1: yeah as soon as the first doctor said as soon as the doctor said we there's no more we can do we talked about going home because he'd already told me that he wanted to die at home yeah now he was too ill by this point really to go having said that on the day that he could go because we were told on a friday and over a weekend nothing much happens in the hospital we had discovered didn't know that before on the monday when he could have come home there was an ambulance strike So there was no ambulance to take him home.
0: Oh my God, no. By the Tuesday,
1: he was told he was too ill to go home. And it was the Wednesday night that he died. So That sparked a conversation. Well, it wasn't really a conversation, but it was, I had to tell him he wasn't going to be able to go home. And I said, uh, oh, I can still feel it now. You know, I just said to him, you know, it doesn't really matter that we're not at home. What matters? is that we're here and this is our home because we're together. And that was, that was true. You know, it was really lovely, but it was hard. So was it just the two of you when he passed? Um, when he actually died? No, I had, um, his closest friend from America had flown over and told her to come on that Monday and, uh, she was there and another friend had been there with us who had been there for a couple of weeks and was uh because one of us was always with Philip during the night um so there were the three of us at his bedside and um yeah it was the strangest thing because he had been um he he had been sedated but because he and, and then he started to have um this kind of uh, breathing where you have a breath and then there's a long gap no. I wrote
0: about this. Yes, <laughs> those gaps are scary.
1: Yeah. I used to count the seconds between the gaps. I know. Well, I knew that this could go on for a long time. And um, he had he had been um, leaning over in his bed quite a lot. And so we'd ask the nurses to to reposition him um, so he looked more comfortable, um, which was a nerve-wracking thing to do because I knew he had quite a big bed sore, which was really, I was not happy about that. He shouldn't have had that. but Anyway, he had it. So they repositioned him and his breathing changed at that point and so I came back in and you know I knew, I knew from what other people had taught me that this kind of breathing can go on for quite a long time but it didn't go on for a long time it went on for about 10 or 15 minutes and that's how I discovered that you don't know when the last breath is because the last breath is the one that well you only realize it's the last breath after there isn't another one if you know what I mean yeah um yeah i do i do yeah yeah. yeah i'm sure a lot of people listening to this will know that as well but um what happened was i i was i was talking to him about the angels being there for him and we were not religious but angels felt the right word to use and his face changed at some point and i i can't still can't tell exactly what it was that changed it was almost like the color changed or something, but not as much as that. And I spoke to my friend Barbara, who was a nurse, and she confirmed that he had died and that the change in him was so strong that I had to stop talking to him because it didn't look like him anymore. And I just continued talking to the ceiling because he wasn't in his body anymore. He had disappeared. Now, I had been expecting his spirit to hang around and talk to me sort of things, <laughs> you know? What I thought would happen because I'd read quite a lot about this sort of stuff but he was not there he had gone completely and um and what was left on the bed was what I referred to afterwards as an empty uh, an empty bag which looked like him looked just like him but it wasn't him it was really clearly not him and it was quite strong that yeah oh
0: gosh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry. Yeah. I do think when you, I I think when you are in the presence of someone, when they die, it's, it's not just that it's sad Mm -hmm. because we're all going to die, but there's something really special about that moment. And not everyone gets to experience it. They don't. Um, There's something special about giving birth or, my case i've been in the room when three different boys were born and that's special Mm. it's really special but there's also something really special about watching um someone move on Mm.
1: yeah well it was my first and i haven't seen anybody else die since then but it was a privilege frankly you know i felt an absolute privilege um and you know his daughter was there not in the room she had come up his eldest daughter, he was very close to her, and she wanted to be told, you know, when I thought he was near to dying, but it happened so quickly. Right. And in retrospect, I think that he was able to go when he was amongst me and his two oldest friends because he felt safe to do that. Now, that might be a story I'm telling myself. I don't mind if it's a story because it's a story that comforts me, and that's what's important. So,
0: I agree it's quite possible that he did not want to die in front of his daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Makes sense. Doesn't it?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. How did you find support or were you able as a caregiver to find support?
1: Well, because we live in quite a big community of, of friends or like-minded people, I um, was able to reach out and, and have quite a lot of support. Actually, I was very lucky. This was before he died, as well as after. And um, beforehand, we were humbled, I think, because people really wanted to help. You know, they wanted to be of practical help. And while he was uh, getting treatment in Aberdeen Hospital, that was two hours' drive away, and I couldn't take that amount of time off every every week. So we had people driving him and it was lovely. It was really lovely. They loved it as well, it was amazing. Afterwards, I was—I um, did get um, quite a lot of support, but in the end I had a, a, a number of probably three or four really close friends that I felt that I could just hang out with, like they were family, maybe not three or four, maybe a couple actually. <laughs> and that was really important because I can remember like I just went to them for a weekend and they only lived down the road like five miles, you know, but going, going for the weekend and being able to sit around and read the papers and not talk and feel comfortable enough to do that. That was really nice. Yeah. Um, so I was very lucky in that respect. Very lucky. Yeah, because lots of people I then discovered lots of people don't really know how to be around you when you're grieving. They just don't have a clue. They feel awkward. And then I was the one trying to make them feel comfortable. It's completely bonkers but true it is bonkers it is it, yeah.
0: it, it totally is i have so much to say but i don't want to go into my story so i'm not doing it <laughs> <laughs> how do you think your experience as a caregiver spouse was different than phillips as a patient during that time
1: that's a good question well I had to get used to the fact that people wanted to know how Philip was, hardly anybody wanted to know how I was.
0: (laughs) Oh yes. Okay. Fair point. Yes. Yes. But God, that's so, I didn't think about that before, but you're right.
1: So I now make a point of people when I know that they are caring for somebody else, I make a point of finding out how they are and giving attention to them as well, because I think that's really important. I think he had to, I was better at receiving help than him, I think. I was more used to it. and I had reached out in other circumstances in my life previously. So he was, he found it more difficult, but was forced to. He had to, he couldn't cope without, you know. Um, And um, I can remember thinking that I wished that in a way that I had the disease, you know, I I, yeah, I think you feel like that, or at least I felt like that when I loved him so much. I didn't want him to be in pain. Right. I thought it would be better if I had it. You know? It's right. not really true, of course, you know, but, but I did feel that strongly about it. Um, the other thing that I had to learn was I had to learn to live my life for myself as well. I had to find that balance in order to keep my mental health and to keep my own balance. So because I was angry that he got it. It wasn't his fault, of course, but I was. Right. Um, I didn't want to let him see that. So one or two of my friends were on the receiving end of me being <laughs> <money>. <laughs> I was very grateful for that. Or a few stomps in the wood, you know, shouting <laughs> at God and all that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you could hold on to one memory forever,
1: what would it be and why? Well, that's a good question. That, I have never been asked that before. And the thing that comes to mind is that when um, we even before he had cancer, well before he had cancer here, he was dealing with chronic fatigue. But he got to the point where he was could manage to travel and he we had sold business that we had so we had some money and we went off he went off to New Zealand and bought a sailing boat invited a friend to come and sit on it with him and the friend would sail the boat and he would just sit there which was fine he could do that because you know he didn't have to do anything and I went off after I'd finished the sale of the business I went to New Zealand as well and to sit on the boat and it was wonderful so that whole time that we had together there was one particular um, day when we went sailing out to one of the islands in Auckland Harbour. And there's, it's a very beautiful place for sailing. i would never gone sailing before. It was lovely weather. <laughs> I was, I, um, we were going out with our friend and long-term friend to a deserted island. And, um, and it was like the stuff in novels, you know, we both got off the boat and he didn't dive in, but I dive, dove into the, Lovely warm water. Oh my god! Coming from Scotland, yeah. that was so nice. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was. And we we walked on the we walked on this. Um, it was a it used to be a volcano, so it had a, it a volcano bit in the middle. It was just a tiny hill, really. And um, that day is that trip to Brown's Island. It was called that. Has really stayed in my memory ever since. A lot of those times, actually, in New Zealand. I'm so glad we did that. You know, it was wonderful.
0: That's beautiful. God. How long were you there? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he was there for the best part of a year on and off. I was there and um, probably about six months in two trips. So yeah, it was an, a, an amazing time. I'm so glad we did it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. What is one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning
1: when Philip was diagnosed? Um. I wish I'd known how important it was to talk openly about all the practicalities we did do a bit of that but we only did it because we were forced to i wish i'd known that it was a normal thing to do and it was a natural thing to do i wish that i'd known um that well we did we did eventually um talk about all this um which has led me to do doing what i'm doing now but i didn't know beforehand because i was terrified of talking to him about practical things about what would happen after he would after he had died and we did pluck up the courage to do it and we had a wonderful time doing it oh my god i wish i'd known that actually talking about somebody's end of life when they are actually facing it can actually be an amazing conversation that brings you really close and very intimate and very connected and full of tenderness If I'd known that, I wouldn't have been so afraid of having it in the first place.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful. Mm. I always tell people, have the death conversation before you get sick.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Have
0: it with your partner, with your children, you know, whomever you believe is relevant, but have that conversation.
1: Yeah. Really important.
0: Yeah, it is. So... Jane, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the UK or Scotland specifically, you choose, what would it be
1: and why? Well, I'm doing it right now and it's in the whole world. (laughs) And it is um, having people uh, talk, have this conversation earlier on while they're still healthy and then get the results of that conversation written down in the form of their end of life plan. And that's the end result really of... That's the gift that I feel that Philip still can give to the world, even though he is no longer physically in this world. Um, and that's what I'm on a mission to do really, um, to have end of life plans be as commonplace as birth plans. So, and um, have I a world They should where, be, right? Yeah, of course they should, should be. be. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe but, you even know. more so because not all of us give birth, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, exactly. but we're
0: all going to die.
1: I know, I know, and when you have this stuff in place beforehand, it's so much easier to grieve healthily and to not be wound up about, oh God, man, mountains of paperwork or indecisiveness or arguments. You know, I mean, eh, nobody thinks that the, the relatives afterwards are going to have arguments unless you already come from an argumentative family. But it's amazing how many families have arguments. Oh yeah. After oh, it's terrible, and it yeah. can be avoided can be avoided.
0: <gasps> yeah, I, I'm very passionate about this as well. And what I tell people, especially who are older than me, and, you know, have, have children, maybe even have grandchildren, but don't have these conversations don't have anything in place, they, they might have a will for their physical property, right? But they yeah. don't have an advanced directive, they don't yeah. have that living will yeah. for healthcare yeah. choices. And I tell them, you know, it fills me with such relief that I know exactly what my father wants. I know. And my stepmother, of course, is his healthcare proxy, but if anything should happen to her, I'm his healthcare proxy. Mm-hmm. And I know, mm-hmm. I not only know what he wants as far as medical care, I know what he wants in terms of a funeral, mm-hmm. where he wants his ashes scattered. You know, if, if, if it makes me feel relieved. Yes. Because I'm not going to have to make those decisions during a terrible time of distress and grief.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I know. And I think the trouble is one of the troubles with this is that people don't realize how discombobulating grief is. They don't realize that unless it's happened to you already. And if you have if you have lost somebody, and you know how awful it is, then you understand how important this work is to this planning and preparation ahead. But if you haven't realized that, then it. I think, I mean, cause you know, I knew about grief from a, um, a theoretical point of view, I'd studied about it. I, I, it was part of all the counseling work that I had done, but my goodness, nothing prepared me for how it slammed into me as a result of Philip dying. Uh, you know, I, I had no idea whatsoever and I couldn't think straight. Quite a lot of the time, I think I th- I thought I was thinking straight, but I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. No. And uh, you know, so anything that anybody can do to make that time easier is so welcome. So welcome.
0: Yeah, I have a friend whose mother knew she was dying. I, I don't think it was COPD. But it was something like that. It was you know, it was sort of a long term mm-hmm. progression. But but the end was near. And her mother planned everything, (laughs) everything. And, and she would say to this day, probably it's still one of the, the best gifts she's ever been given because she Mm -hmm. and her sister, they didn't argue. They knew exactly what their mother wanted. They, they knew where she wanted to be buried, what her service was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And it also took that burden off their father who was grieving perhaps deeper, even more, you know, or a different kind of loss, I should say. And. And it really just, it made that transition better for them as a family. And they were all on the same page because mom told them exactly what to do.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and actually, most people do want to do what the person who has died wanted, but if you don't know what they wanted, that's really difficult. It was the yeah. same with my mom and dad. My mom and dad both died in 2018 and they had been really good students of mine and they had filled out their (laughs) before I go workbooks and so and I was their executor and all I had to do was follow their instructions the thing that I didn't know until that happened was how there was definitely solace for me in knowing that they had known before they died that I would be carrying out their instructions that felt really really good it was a comfort at a horrible time um so yeah it's I but, you but we are preaching to the converted here you and me yeah i know we are
0: <laughs> 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 well not the listeners necessarily because i don't no. always no. have this kind of conversation so i just i just love it because it, it is so important the, the work you're doing we will come back to how people could get in touch with you mm-hmm. are you ready for the thriver rapid fire
1: Am I ready for what? Sorry,
0: the thriver
1: rapid fire questions. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I just didn't uh, hear what you said there. <laughs>
0: no problem. Here we go. Beach, desert or mountains? Mountains. Beach boys, beetles or rolling stones? Beetles. What is one word that best describes you?
1: Um, vivacious.
0: Oh, I love that for you. And you'll like these questions. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: Imagine, John Lennon.
0: And the last meal you want to eat?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's coming to mind is uh, tuna pasta in the way that I make it. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, huh? No. <laughs> I know, it's not very special, but the way I make it is special for us. It's got a lot of meaning, that though, that particular meal because I have married again since, and it's this husband's favourite meal, but it was the last husband's favourite meal as well. So. It wasn't. Oh, oh, that you make, that you. Yeah, 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 oh, okay. that I make, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I was going to say, not not everybody can make tuna pasta. Ball. Know, no, no. Um, what about the last person or people you want to see?
1: My current husband,
0: yeah. And the last words you will speak? I love you. And aside from cancer you, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And this is where I want you to tell people how to get in touch with you because you're doing yes. amazing
1: work. I would say to if you haven't done your end of life plan, then go to beforeIGoQuiz.com, which where you get introduced just to some of the questions that are really important, really easy, yes or no questions. It'll take you 30 seconds to find out how well prepared you are or not for a good end of life um, and okay I'm uh, gonna
0: take the quiz everybody watching listening I'm taking the quiz and I have I think I have the stuff in order but I'm gonna find out
1: so yeah keep going fantastic <laughs> oh you'll have to let me know Andrea because I've, I've put some some of the questions that you would expect there but one or two that maybe some people don't think about so we'll see <laughs> okay my website is beforeigosolutions.com. solutions.com if you want to be in touch with me, just email Jane at before I go solutions.com that will find its way to me. And I'm very happy to talk to anybody or to reach out and to help in anything to do with dying, death, grief, talking, end of life planning, whatever.
0: <laughs> and if someone wants to get your book, can they get it there as well? well are They can.
1: Um, and some of them are only available on Amazon or in, in bookshops. So you, um, but you can find them on Amazon. I, I've got two books, Gifted by Grief and Before I Go. So. All
0: right. Oh, Jane, you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. You're just amazing.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple podcast, Amazon music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university, that's cancer.university, and hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast, real people, true stories.